Hello and welcome to Optimal the Podcast. I'm your host, Dickon Weatherby. This podcast and my website all focus on one goal, and that's the quest for optimal health. If you're enjoying this podcast, please go over to OptimalDX.com. Check out our resources on how we can help you to help your patients achieve optimal health so they can experience an optimal life. Now, without any further delay, is today's episode. Hello there, this is Dr. Dickon Weatherby. Welcome to Optimal, the podcast. Well, we've got a kind of a fun-filled podcast for you this month. Uh, we're going to try and do these uh, podcasts on a monthly basis, and we've kind of come up with some a format that I think is going to be uh, uh, a good format for us going forward. So, all right, let's talk about oxidative stress. So, the question really is um, this condition called oxidative stress. I feel like this is something that kind of gets thrown around a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I would like to do in, in the time that we've got is to kind of just do a little bit of a, a dive into what is it? What is mm-hmm. this oxidative stress that we talk about? Um, what causes it? What effects does it have on the body? And then I'd love for you to talk about the nutritional components too, mm-hmm. Beth, that you looked at. So yeah, we want to take a look at um, kind of uh, the role that, that we can how can we assess for sort of an oxidative environment? Because obviously if someone is in an oxidative uh, environment in their bodies, it can have ramifications. So let's back up a little bit and talk about what is it? So oxidative stress uh, is an imbalance between what they call the reactive oxygen species and antioxidant activity. So it's really this balance. So Mm -hmm. we tend to be pushed into more of an oxidative environment when, if you can imagine you've got a seesaw, antioxidants are diminished. So these could be either antioxidants that we have internally within our body that, are, that act as an antioxidant or antioxidants that we take um, in through our diet and as also supplements. So antioxidant production or intake is diminished, antioxidant activity within the body is diminished, and then free radical activity is increased. So we get this imbalance that occurs. So, you know, under normal circumstances, we have a balance, right? That's what I love about mm-hmm. the human body. The human body is, exists in this state of homeostasis and so things are moving in and moving out. So we'll talk a little bit about deficiencies in those antioxidants. I'll, I'll turn to you, Beth, to look at it from mm-hmm. sort of the nutritional perspective. But what are some of the things that can cause excess uh, reactive oxygen species? So this, these cause DNA damage and they increase our risk for chronic diseases. So a lot of the diseases that our patients are suffering from, and then also the preconditions that we use uh, blood chemistry and our uh, assessment techniques to try and assess for trends towards these things are diabetes, cancer, cardiovascular disease, uh, and that sort of thing. But also one of the aspects that I think is really interesting, and you pointed this out, Beth, is this concept of excess calorie intake. So we live in a, in a, in a, a time where we have available to us any type of calories that we want to eat whenever we want to eat it at any particular time of day or night. So we are actually in a, because of the excess calories that we're intaking and the impacts that it has on elevated levels of glucose, elevated levels of free fatty acid, elevated levels of triglycerides that are occurring after a meal mm-hmm. cause what you termed postprandial oxidative stress. And this can cause the mitochondrial and the leukocytes uh, to be impacted. Uh, we also are cooking at high temperatures and these produce uh, advanced glycation uh, end products, AGEs, which can cause endothelial dysfunctions. These are associated with oxidative stress. And interestingly enough, calorie restriction decreases lipid peroxidation. So you've got a couple of interesting research studies that I'll post on that uh, in terms of uh, the correlation between calorie restriction. So a lot of, a lot, there's a lot of talk nowadays on intermittent fasting and fasting. Well, mm-hmm. I'm sure a lot of that has impacts on lipid peroxidation and protein catabolism as well. Mm-hmm. So we have to remember that uh, there are exogenous and endogenous um, causes. So exogenous being things outside of our bodies. So smog, cigarette smoke, radiation, including too much sunlight. Uh, consumption of excessive amounts of alcohol and chime in here if there are any other exogenous causes that you can think of Beth. Um, probably radiation what, radiation toxins that mm-hmm. we're eating in our toxins. food yeah so a lot of these things that, that you you talked about here the advanced glycation end products from, uh, from mm-hmm. high temperatures that's an exogenous mm-hmm. source right there mm-hmm. i think the other really interesting thing is the endogenous causes right so we have things inside of our body which push us potentially to being more uh, in an oxidative environment so the mitochondria, 
mitochondria is an oxidative process, right? So oxidative mm -hmm. chemistry actually occurs within the mitochondria. So uh, we'll talk a little bit about that. The liver, liver and cytochrome P450. I mean, the body relies on oxidation in order to deal with a lot of the issues that, that come at us. So, mm -hmm. uh, the immune system system especially uses yeah, oxidative exactly. stress. Yeah, kill yeah. So, so one of the biomarks we look at for oxidative stress is a decreased uh, lymphocyte count. So, you know, potentially oxidative environment, the body's using up uh, lymphocytes in, the, in a way that uh, is potentially uh, causing an impact. Uh, extreme stress, uh, both physical and uh, psychosomatic as well as psychophysical. Excess neurotransmitter activity. And then, of course, we have all of those uh, conditions and diseases that are um, associated with it. So what are some of the diseases that are associated with oxidative stress? We have heart disease, cancer, arthritis, lung disease, fibromyalgia, diabetes, Parkinson's. Um, but uh, yeah, ARDS, cataracts. Yeah. Exactly. There are other things, you know, people don't yeah. realize are related, but they are yeah. definitely related to oxidative stress. And inflammation and oxidative stress often go hand in hand. Absolutely. And then, um, so I, a lot of it too is like, is... Are, is you know, what what comes first, you know, the chicken or the egg? So does the mm -hmm. oxidative stress come first that then causes these conditions or are these conditions causing an oxidative you know, stress kind of concept? So you talked a little bit about, um, uh, there's a pretty cool little slide that you produced from uh, one of the research studies looking at uh, <laughs> a borrowed, yeah. So the, the liver, um, the adipose tissues, the pancreas and the skeletal muscle all contributing potentially to this uh, endogenous mm -hmm. concept of oxidative stress. And then that oxidative stress in, an, in turn leading to insulin resistance, right? So we have cells that are becoming resistant to insulin. Why is that? Well, is it because there's an increase in oxidative stress in the body because of dysfunction in these particular organ systems, the liver, the adipose tissue, the pancreas, and the skeletal muscle? And then you have to go further upstream. And what is the cause of that? Well, it's a lot of it's the nutrition that people are eating. So, um, that, that should always be a part of someone's assessment. You have to ask what a person's diet is like. What's their antioxidant status? How many fruits and vegetables do they eat? How many yeah. toxins are they exposed to? All that's got to be part of that first assessment. It's just so many pieces of the puzzle you'd be missing. So I'm kind of curious um, for, for that concept too, because, you know, we, we were always taught, you know, do the diet diary. And do you, do you have patients... Uh, filling out diet diaries, do you have them use some kind of um, online tracker, which, you know, pretty much if ca calculates will, every single piece of yeah. food they put in their body? Yeah, there are, there's like MyFitnessPal we've had people use, and it's hooked up yeah. to the wellness app. So if you can get people to do it, it's very yeah. labor intensive, though. You right. got to get somebody really, really into this <laughs> to document every single thing they eat. But it can help to walk someone through while you have them as a captive audience and enter it as I speak with them. And then I have, I get a look at, you know, what, what they say they ate. I mean, there are sometimes people don't want to say exactly what they've eaten. They don't give you a good, perfect rundown. But, you yeah. know, I explain that I need to know what's going on. I need all the pieces of the puzzle so that I can put it together. So you can do it that way. But I think you can get some generalities, you know, from folks too, what their diet is like, what their habits are like. Um, so it doesn't have to be quite as labor intensive mm -hmm. as a full MyFitnessPal daily log but it does yeah. help if they do that for sure and what about me you're talking there about sort of analyzing and assessing for the sort of the antioxidant levels in their diet uh, can you tell pretty quickly just by looking at um... fruits and vegetables number one <laughs> <laughs> you know, fruits and veggies and that's one of the questions on the intake evaluation is yeah. how many servings of fruits and vegetables do you have it's like zero to two two to four four to yeah. six more than six so as soon as they check that off and a lot of times they see zero to two because people aren't taught. I mean, nutrition education, a lot of times the general nutrition education in this country is lacking. Yeah. We don't even have PSAs. We don't really have a really good educational system where people know where to go find the information. So they don't even know that it's so important to have. It used to be a five a day program, right? Five a day, five servings of fruits and vegetables a day to reduce your risk of cancer. That was a great campaign. They, yeah. On every, you go to the supermarket and on the produce bags, it said eat five a day for better health. 
And now that's just gone. You can't mm -hmm. even find information. So I think it's a regular nutrition education that folks need to realize that they have to eat more fruits and veggies. That's one of the numero uno places to get your antioxidants. And then Avian supplementation, what are the plant-based foods are they eating? For the mm -hmm. most part, you know, most of the antioxidants will come from plant-based foods. So that's the first assessment to do. Yeah, because an oxidative stress burden and this is something that, that I, I talk about in the training and also in in the software as well it's not we're not measuring oxidative stress in the body we, we don't have the measurement like we're measuring for vitamin d or so oh yeah you've got this biomarker is you know means that you have this amount of oxidative stress what we're really looking at is is there an oxidative stress environment happening in the body and what is the burden that that's having and how can we quantify that burden so we'll talk a little bit about the biomarkers in a minute but one of the interesting things that that you and I've been bouncing back and forth is this concept of glutathione. Obviously mm -hmm. I share with that I'm, you know, injecting glutathione and uh, I, I find that to be uh, probably a very, very good thing for me, especially around the COVID. And I had a, an article that was sent to me by a, by a colleague, uh, you know, kind of looking at the relationship between glutathione levels and adverse outcomes for, for COVID. So mm -hmm. um, I'd love for you to kind of go through that because I sent that to you for you to have a little mm -hmm. bit of a deep dive. So maybe we could kind of look at, look at glutathione in the context of oxidative stress and, and what it is in the body, but also potentially tie it back into COVID a little bit and then maybe mm -hmm. how we can use um, the software potentially even to look at glutathione levels. So do you feel up to that? <laughs> sure, sure. sure. <laughs> I, would, I would start with the background too and then maybe go into that, yeah, yeah. Um, that piece about the glutathione and COVID, because some folks might not know what glutathione is. It's a tripeptide made of three different amino acids. You have glycine, glutamic acid, which can come from glutamine, and cysteine. And the cysteine is a rate limiting amino acid. So without enough cysteine, you're done. You can't make any more glutathione. Right. So the glutathione itself is the tripeptide, and then you make glutathione enzymes like glutathione peroxidase. Uh, but glutathione itself, it helps maintain the reduction oxidative balance in the body, redox balance. It helps reduce oxidative stress. It facilitates metabolic detoxification and even helps help re regulate immune function. And of course, our diet can support affecting or excuse me support circulating glutathione we'll talk about that how you can increase your own production and increase intracellular glutathione without having um, to inject it <laughs> without having to, well that's a direct you know we have people parkinson's and cystic fibrosis yeah. in a clinic i worked in and they got iv glutathione and it did wonders so you know is it a problem yeah. that a person's not making enough glutathione or they have so much oxidative stress they deplete it quickly so in a yeah. fairly healthy person you know maybe through their diet they can increase their own production increase their own levels without the need for injection but that definitely the iv glutathione definitely um definitely the way to go when you need it with those especially with those severe cases um there are some things that support your own production of glutathione and that's, of course, you got to take the three amino acids in, but also supporting glutathione activity, you have alpha-lipoic acid, curcumin, uh, you can supplement glutathione directly, of course, glycine, green tea, and acetylcysteine would be a source of cysteine, mm -hmm. and whey protein is a source of cysteine. So when people do the whey protein shakes or use that as part of their protein intake for the day, they're getting that cysteine as a bonus, which can boost your glutathione. Um, Omega-3 fatty acids can help support the activity of glutathione. And plant-based foods, you have the allium family, like onion and garlic, the brassica family, broccoli, uh, citrus, you have lemon, lime, orange, and then fruits and vegetables in general are actually about 50% of the glutathione in the diet comes from fruits and vegetables. Right. So people might not have realized that. So it's another reason, not just antioxidants, but glutathione content to consume um, fruits and veggies and then selenium you need that for some of the glutathione enzymes vitamin c and e all of those things can help to either make glutathione work or support the production of glutathione in the body and that was a nice article from deanna minnick who is a, um, a cns certified nutrition specialist phd level she's a great girl and then we had uh, Pizzorno, Dr. Pizzorno gave us a nice rundown of glutathione, how important it is. It's in, as abundant, it needs to be as abundant in the cells as other things like potassium, glucose, and cholesterol. So it's a really important intracellular compound. And it's in reduced form, we call it GSH or oxidized form, which is GSSG. 
and the balance will determine if you're in oxidative stress. And they found that healthy cells have a ratio of greater than 100 GSH to one GSSG. So 100 reduced form to one oxidized form. But cells that are under oxidative stress, that ratio is turned on its head where you have one of the reduced form to 10 of the oxidized form of glutathione. Wow, so you start to deplete, yeah, you deplete that glutathione. So you want to produce more. And if you can't produce more, you want to take it externally. Um, and there's even a, a cream, a liposomal cream. And there's a certain type you take by mouth, like acetyl glutathione, that's better absorbed, they say. Yeah, I think it's like in a reduced form. There used to be um, a product called Rakankastat. Do you remember Rakankastat? Oh, I don't remember that. Okay. I don't know if it's still available. Rakankastat was a specialized form of reduced glutathione that bypassed, because mm. uh, apparently in the gut, it can get transformed and made less mm -hmm. bioavailable. Anyway, mm -hmm. so I'm just kind of curious. I mean, I've, I've never heard that ratio of uh, reduced to, to oxidized form. I think that's fascinating. I thought that was interesting. If only we had this like magic ball where you could just I look know. in a crystal ball and see what's going on in the cell. It probably but, will know, at some you, point in the future. We'll probably have you put your hand in a scanner. It'll tell you all of this well, stuff. Yeah, at some point. We catch up with Star Trek, right? Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> okay. So glutathione again. We know it's an antioxidant cofactor and itself it quenches free radicals directly, uh, free radicals directly. It actually regenerates vitamin C and E. Interesting. So you could require less vitamin C and E when you have enough glutathione on board. And we know that it supports phase one detoxification, the intermediate phase, and also supports phase two detoxification. So you need a lot of glutathione, especially mm. for detoxification, because we are exposed to so many toxins that need to be broken down and excreted. Otherwise, they'll build up in the blood, we'll, I mean, the liver, excuse me, or we'll send them out in the blood to be stored in fat cells. All those toxins that get stored there, I always tell people when they go to lose weight, be careful because your fat cells are now going to dump all those toxins right into your bloodstream again. So your liver needs that glutathione support as you lose weight. And that's a good multivitamin mineral supplement, lots of fruits and veggies, et cetera. You know. um, glutathione can even transport mercury out of cells and out of the brain. So it can work like a chelator. And it helps regulate cell proliferation and apoptosis, supports mitochondrial function and DNA even. So it does a lot of different things. Um, I did find interesting a biomarker, the GGT gets upregulated when you're trying to salvage cysteine from, uh, for glutathione production. The GGT can go up. So yeah. that could be a sign that you need to make more glutathione and that you're trying to make glutathione. That's funny because that's actually... That's the pattern that we're looking at. I think it did, mm -hmm. did come from Joseph Pizzorno. So we, we look at uh, GGT levels above 30 as being you know, out of the optimal. So as, you, as your levels of GGT get higher and higher, potentially your need for glutathione goes up. So that's a, kind of a nice, yeah, your body's trying. So it's mm -hmm. kind of a nice pattern. Again, it's not measuring glutathione. It's not saying that you're glutathione deficient. It's like, hey, if you're seeing your GGT levels starting to climb and there are no other reasons for it, um, consider glutathione as potentially mm -hmm. an issue there. Mm -hmm. And check for someone's oxidative stress, how many yeah. toxins are they exposed yeah. to, what are their needs, are they losing weight, and we having to detoxify all those toxins all over again that mm -hmm. got released from the fat cells. So all those pieces, you always got to put all those pieces together. Yep, agreed. Yeah. Uh, I thought this was interesting, Meditani uh, meditation increased glutathione, 20% increase in those who practice meditation. Wow. Percent increase in glutathione, that's from Fizono too, yep. Now, depletion, aging, cardiovascular disease, you I, see I depletion. noticed that you uh, jumped over alcohol-free beer. I thought that was weird. I can't <laughs> explain that one. But yeah, he says alcohol-free beer increased red blood cell glutathione by 29%. So oh, I, go, yeah. what I don't know what kind of alcohol-free beer he's drinking, but uh, is it yeah. like alcohol-free poorly girl or something? I don't know. I think somebody snuck the alcohol back in. Yeah, know. right. But, but anyway, beer, sorry, you know, I interrupted hey. you on that front. Oh, no, no, that's okay. I know, I'm wondering, I could take forever, right, and, and mention everything on the page. But um, so we'll, we'll put this article. It's a, it's a great article that Beth found. It's um, Joseph Pizzorno's article from 2014 in Integrated Perfect. Medicine. So, yeah, we'll, we'll cite this for you to take a look at. But um, um, Depletion, too. If you have somebody with cystic fibrosis, they're going to need glutathione, immune right. dysfunction, aging, cardiovascular disease, liver disease, pulmonary disease, uh, neurogenerative diseases. Although, you know, pulmonary disease, too, they, 
um, mucomist is actually N-acetylcysteine. That's something mm-hmm. they give to yeah. people with respiratory issues. And if you have an acetaminophen overdose, they give you N-acetylcysteine in the ER so that you can make more glutathione. Yeah, just, um, just a mucolytic agent kind of dissolves mm-hmm. that mucus. Yeah, especially for cystic fibrosis can be quite helpful. Mm-hmm. Oh, I know, that's that's a brutal <laughs> it's disease. It's a brutal disease. Know, podcasts, know. Yeah, had some experience with those kids and, and they grow up, you know, to an early age, uh, adult age, but it's brutal. Yeah, it's not a, not a great quality of life. No, no. So anyway, so that's kind of a background on glutathione. And then we, we found this, or you sent in this from your friend, the Viewpoint article, mm-hmm. and from Polonikov. And of course, we know with COVID-19, the more severe forms are in those people with comorbidities. And the comorbidities, like diabetes, like cardiovascular disease, those folks tend to have more severe COVID and be more glutathione depleted and mm. respiratory diseases. So they're trying to tie that in and say, you know, this really would make sense that these folks are depleted of glutathione. They already have these comorbidities. They're going to have severe COVID if they don't already have more severe COVID. So why not provide them with glutathione, right? right. And exogenous glutathione. And they also found that the glutathione levels correlated positively with vitamin D. So the higher the level of glutathione, yeah, the reduced form, the higher the vitamin D and the lower level of glutathione reduced form and cysteine, the lower the level of vitamin D. So we know low levels of vitamin D correlate with COVID. Now we know low glutathione appears to correlate with severe COVID. So Mm. why not address these? I literally emailed one of the directors at the NIH yesterday, and I just kind of screamed, why isn't anybody looking at nutrition for, mm-hmm. for COVID risk factors? And I just gave him a little bit of information and put in a couple of studies because it's very frustrating because we know yeah. that it's so important to reduce your risk of severe COVID. Um, they, they also suggested in this research that an insufficient intake of fruit, fresh vegetables and fruits um, and low vitamin D contributed to more severe COVID-19. Mm. Mm-hmm. So, you know, fruits and veggies, these plant-based foods that we literally rely on, right? We rely on plants and we forget that. Mm-hmm. The standard American diet forgets that. And so <laughs> we forget to teach people that you've got to eat your plant-based foods. And of course, go organic when you can, because we want to reduce the toxic load on our bodies, but also on the soil and in the runoff of the you know water that runs off to some of the farms with all these pesticides so pesticides are toxins so if we can reduce that burden right. um, that would be helpful as well as you're always reminding us you know plants are the only things that make certain vitamins yep. um so yep. we have to have them and also the the uh, bioflavonoids and, mm-hmm. and other uh, botanicals and extracts and things like that so mm-hmm. yeah we have totally a lot we have a lot to be thankful for for uh, for our, for our plants fruits and veggies mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. people just don't eat enough, so. I know. We'll get them to. We'll we? get them to, right. <laughs> um, I did see another study, too, <clears throat> with supplementation of just glycine and N-acetylcysteine okay. boosted glutathione. So I thought that was really interesting. And this was just, a, it was actually a symposium presentation. Uh, but they did do a placebo-controlled double-blind study of just glycine and N-acetylcysteine, and they found that it improved glutathione deficiency, improved gait speed, improved muscle strength, exercise capacity, and even corrected impaired mitochondrial fuel oxidation. So it reduced oxidative stress, it reduced inflammation, and it reduced insulin resistance. So that should be turned into a huge study, I would hope. Mm-hmm. But I thought that was interesting because that's a pretty simple thing to, to just to supplement with glycine and N-acetylcysteine or glycine and whey protein. You know, because sometimes I have people say, listen, I am not taking more than six pills a day. I'm like, okay, now I have to prioritize, right? Mm-hmm. Um, or I can sneak in sometimes like the whey protein with the greens powder. I can sneak that into a smoothie or um, whey protein powder I put in chocolate. It's like hiding it in a piece of cheese. Yeah, I make my chocolate trishes with the, you know, add some nuts and add some, I had everything in that, the greens powder, wow. um, put everything in there and hide it in a little bit of 60% cocoa and, and everybody will eat that. So there's a way to get, get this stuff into people. Uh, but anyway, so a simple supplementation with just glycine and acetylcysteine, I thought was great. So again, you talked about, you know, biomarkers for oxidative stress. It is hard to measure directly. It's very expensive if you try to do the the experimental measurements. But, you know, cholesterol, like you said, in the pattern, if it drops low, 
a low cholesterol is associated with oxidative stress because people don't realize that cholesterol, they believe itself acts as an antioxidant. So when you're, there's too much oxidative stress, boom, the cholesterol can drop. Or if the cholesterol is already too low, you might have an issue with an increase in, in oxidative stress. So remember that cholesterol is our friend. It's super important to every cell in the body. It's super important to the brain, most abundant lipid in the brain. So cholesterol is important, but oxidized cholesterol is bad. So if you see it dropping, you could be seeing the results of oxidative stress as part of, our, of your pattern. Mm -hmm. One on. of the other interesting <laughs> things is um, looking at, you know, are you... Are you looking at the cause or, I mean, not the cause, are you, are you looking at the effects of an oxidative environment causing certain biomarkers to become affected? Like I think cholesterol is probably one of those, right? Mm -hmm. So if it is a, a fat soluble antioxidant, it's in the, the cell membrane. Mm -hmm. If we are in a pro-oxidative environment, the body's going to want to try and deal with that with its internal antioxidant threshold and levels. Mm -hmm. And so potentially cholesterol um, gets used up. I don't, I don't quite know the mechanism of action of this, but um, we, we do know that this, the sudden decrease in, in cholesterol as well. So I, I the, thought this was interesting. I'm going to just say that they found that LDL itself contains its own antioxidant compounds, like oh, alpha-tocopherol, wow. beta-carotene, CoQ10, and that protects that cholesterol that's in the LDL from oxidation. So again, an antioxidant, any antioxidant depletion that is going to make that LDL cholesterol more susceptible to oxidation. And of course, you know that the oxidized LDL is the one that can increase the uh, damage to the blood vessels and set off the whole foam cells with the white blood cells. So the macrophages. So, you know, antioxidants, bottom line, are going to help preserve your cholesterol, help your cholesterol do its job as an antioxidant, uh, help preserve your levels of glutathione. So I think that's almost always a place to start. And it doesn't mean always overdose on antioxidants, right? Because we talked about needing a little bit of oxidative stress in our metabolism. But mm -hmm. most people are overloaded with oxidative stress and, and underloaded with antioxidants. So for most folks, that's what we're going to have to, have cool. to correct. Well, that we, we could probably do a whole podcast just on oxidative stress, but I think that we've kind of mm -hmm. covered some important information mm -hmm. here. And I, I really appreciate you diving into that uh, glutathione article because I think uh, we are in a, in a COVID world right now. I think any tools that we have at our disposal to help A, prevent these adverse outcomes if you do get COVID, mm -hmm. um, and then also if someone is um, suffering you know, being able to come in and be able to do some nutritional work with them. So um, I would say probably glutathione is something we should definitely take a look at along mm -hmm. with vitamin D, obviously, as we've talked to it's at length about. It's easy to supplement, right? It's, it's easy, easy to, supplement to supplement to make your own. Yeah. Mm -hmm. cool. Do you have time to dive into a few biomarkers? Sure. What do we want so to do first? Beth does incredible biomarker research for us. If you haven't had a chance to go over to our blog and look at some of uh, the blog posts that are put up there, um, as we add new biomarkers into the software, uh, we typically will do a, 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 a review of those. Uh, we're going to look at a few biomarkers that we will be releasing to the software in the coming weeks. And we have four of them. <laughs> so um, first up is, uh, it's actually a biomarker that a lot of you have been asking about for a long time. It's called adiponectin. Um, so uh, Beth did some great research, did some background on this. Uh, so we'll just kind of cover a little bit about uh, adiponectin and maybe Beth, you could talk a little bit about some of the, the, the things that affected and all of that, but I'll just do a, a brief background on it and then you can take it away. Um, adiponectin, a protein-based hormone, so secreted primarily from adis, adipocytes, though it is produced by uh, other cells in the body as well, including endothelial cells, uh, skeletal muscle, cardiac muscle. Um, so it is found to have beneficial anti-inflammatory, anti-atherogenic, and insulin-sensitizing effects. So it's a complex protein. Uh, internally in our bodies, it's helping to improve insulin sensitivity, helping to modulate inflammation, reducing the risk of atherosclerosis. Um, cardiometabolic disease is associated with low levels of adiponectin. So it's interesting. It's one of those uh, biomarkers you actually want to have quite a little bit in your body, right? So we don't often see that. We, I mean, unless 
you know, so there's things like um, high sensitivity C-reactive protein. Yeah, you don't want high levels of that. You want low levels mm-hmm. of that. Well, adiponectin, mm-hmm. you want high levels. So cardiometabolic disease is associated with low levels of adiponectin. So what, what are some of the uh, things that can affect or reduce adiponectin? It's been associated with severe metabolic disorders. Uh, correlated with type 2 diabetes, insulin resistance, cardiovascular disease, myocardial infarction, obesity, mm-hmm. anything else, Beth? Um, well, in those inverse, inverse yeah, these relationships. Are all inverse yeah, relationships, yeah, right? yeah, so yeah. Those so, are low levels. So can you talk a little bit about uh, what, what effects adiponectin has on the beneficial effects on, on the tissues? Well, let's see. In the adipose tissue, it can increase glucose uptake, fat storage, adipogenesis, and can decrease inflammation. So you might think, well, that's not a good thing, but adipose tissue is meant to store fat, right? We don't want it floating around in the blood. So it might increase uptake at at the fat cells. And the beta cells, it can decrease, excuse me, increase glucose-stimulated insulin secretion and viability and decrease apoptosis of the beta cells, right, in the the Mm -hmm. pancreas. In the endothelium, and it can increase angiogenesis and function and decrease oxidative stress. So we have another tie-in to oxidative yeah, stress in go. all those other chronic diseases, right? Uh, in the heart, muscle, it can decrease energy, excuse me, decrease injury and apoptosis. At the kidney level, it can increase function and recovery and decrease oxidative stress again. And the liver, it increase insulin sensitivity and decrease gluconeogenesis and lipogenesis. And the macrophages can increase insulin sensitivity and decrease inflammation. And in the muscle, it can increase fatty acid oxidation. So it is a big plus plus. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That's good for energy balance, right? It's favorable for metabolism and energy balance. Increases the use of fatty acids for energy. So especially someone that wants to lose weight or maybe even enhance their their exercise activity, uh, reduces generation of glucose by the liver. And ironically, though levels increase in response to fasting and will increase appetite and food intake, adiponectin levels are inversely correlated with body fat and BMI. Mm -hmm. So the higher levels, you have lower body fat and lower BMI. Um, In general, levels tend to be a bit higher in women than in men. It's one kind of interesting. It's one of those things, obviously, higher levels are very beneficial for the body, yet it isn't one of those things that you can take as a supplement. Or uh, So it's really, again, it's a balance between avoiding things that decrease it mm-hmm. and doing things that will help to increase it. So uh, the things that can decrease your levels are a bad diet, uh, poor mm-hmm. exercise habits, some genetic factors, fat distribution, sleep deprivation, mm-hmm. smoking. Um, I thought it was kind of interesting that, that you pointed out in one of the research studies that, quote, adiponectin is an adipokine with anti-inflammatory, antioxidant, anti-atherogenic, pro-angiogenic, vasoprotective, and insulin-sensitizing properties. So, you know, these are all the things that we recommend, right? Eat a healthy diet, mm-hmm. exercise, uh, you know, do whatever you can to, to decrease body fat. Uh, don't have adip- uh, you know, adipose tissue in your belly fat and things like that. Get enough sleep. Don't smoke. Don't take uh, medications. Uh, take supplements. So these are all the really, really important things. Uh, some specific supplements too they had said i had a couple yeah of why don't you go through those quickly and then we'll okay omega-3 yeah. fatty acids always good right fish yeah. oil purified fish oil dha safflower oil conjugated linoleic acid cla grapeseed extract green tea extract taurine an amino acid and mm-hmm. resveratrol uh so they found that that can increase your cool. yeah and then low levels again were associated with obesity abdominal bc diabetes insulin resistance metabolic syndrome atherosclerosis cardiovascular disease again like you said and smoking and all those things are related to oxidative stress i know so all know. these it's things tie in and yeah keep it simple a good diet lots of fruits and veggies exercise get outside get some sun all these real basics that we need to teach people all over again mm. This is a completely different aside. We're going to come back to COVID just for a second here. Um, I was reading an article on Macola.com where Macola was basically saying, listen, the comorbidities that exist and put us in a far worse situation if we were to get and develop and have Mm -hmm. COVID-19 are the same diseases that we're all Mm -hmm. dealing with. It's basically cardiometabolic, 
metabolic, it's metabolic syndrome and mm-hmm. insulin resistance basically what so we've got hypertension uh, high blood fats uh, high levels of cholesterol uh, blood sugar dysregulation insulin resistance uh, obesity these are all if you look at the comorbidities around um, adverse uh, COVID outcomes that they're all the comorbidities that are associated with metabolic syndrome and cardiovascular mm-hmm. disease it's mm-hmm. really quite staggering I'd like to liken it to so if you have a car that you love and you put into that car cola uh, corn oil, you know, and all mm. the wrong things. How is the car going to run, right? It's, it's not, not gonna going to run very well. It's not going to function. And it's no miracle to say, oh, if we just give that car the fuel that it needs and the spark plugs that it needs and the oil mm. chains it needs, it'll run better. Yeah. And people have to think of their bodies that way. You know, you keep feeding it all this, the junk food and only the junk food in the absence of everything else that you need, the car's not going to run well. Yeah, Your body's so, not gonna true. Run well. so true, so true. Well, that was adiponectin. Let's talk a little bit about active B12. Um, so we, we, we obviously have B12 in the software and it's easily measured. So adding the B12 active holotranscobalamin um, is another way of being able to kind of do a, do a kind of a deeper dive. I think one of the reasons why we're doing it is, uh, or measuring uh, active holotranscobalamin is that serum measurement of vitamin B12 alone may not reflect insufficiency as it is relatively insensitive and a relatively unspecific marker that may not change until late in a deficiency. It's kind of why I like the sort of the optimal range kind of concept for for B12 as well, because it can actually help us uncover that sort of hidden uh, insufficiency as opposed to necessarily a frank deficiency. We can also look at other biomarkers. So we've got methylmalonic acid in the software. We've got homocysteine. Those can also be super helpful for assessing B12 status. MCV, a simple MCV. A simple MCV. MCV, thank you. Yeah, of course, yeah. that was the very first thing that, that we were all mm-hmm. looking at was a high MCV being related to B12 deficiency. Absolutely. Thanks for reminding us. I, I you know, I, I'm always wanting to go back to kind of don't forget the basics, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. so thank you mm-hmm. for reminding us. MCV, it's a very classic. Might be all you have. Might be <laughs> all that you have. Exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. So don't, don't feel like you have to go in and spend hundreds of dollars on this test here just because you think that you need it. It's, listen, we've got serum B12, which is relatively easy to do. And with, a, with a, an optimal range measurement, you can get a pretty good sense of it. We've also got MCV. Uh, if you are doing homocysteine, which I hope you are doing, so we've got three biomarkers mm-hmm. there that can really be very helpful for assessing B12 status. And then if you might want to add in methylmalonic acid as well. Um, maybe you could tell us a little bit about the holotranscobalamin, uh, why it is what it is and, and why we're measuring it. Okay. I mean, maybe just a, a little reminder about B12, how important it is, right? It's important to yeah, DNA yeah, yeah. synthesis, amino acid metabolism, nerve cell integrity. Y'all can read all this on the blog, right? We'll just get into it now. <laughs> <be> underneath <laughs> of this audio. <laughs> but the, the serum measurement, again, of the B12 alone isn't, isn't quite enough. So the holotranscobalamin or holotc is actually binding protein. And it seems to be the best biomarker for identifying the very, very early stages of B12 deficiency. Mm. So when we see a drop or reduced level of holotranscobalamin, um, that's a signal that there is a B12 insufficiency or a functional deficiency. So maybe there's not enough in the body or what's in the body isn't being utilized at the cellular level. So we can see that when it's, even if the total serum B12 is within normal range, if the holotranscobalamin is dropping, you have an issue, right? So I would say this is a definitive marker that we have right now. About 10 to 30% of circulating B12 is carried on holotranscobalamin Mm -hmm. and is then readily available for cells and tissue. The rest is bound to a protein called haptochlorin. So that's not available for delivery. So if you just take in your B12, level in general you don't know if the active b12 is available for cells right you just have that total level available like so, measuring um, total total t4 and not getting that free t4 level as yep, well you know? yep. yeah what's really going on right mm-hmm. how many cars do you have in your driveway well how many of them have wheels right <laughs> you have 10 <laughs> junk cars in your driveway well, how do you have it gas in the help. tank you know right <laughs> right no gas in the tank it's yeah, not right. active it doesn't count so we want to know the holotranscobalamin seems to be extremely helpful um, 
Uh, let's see what else is the preferred marker. And again, risk factors, all of these you can read on the blog, uh, but there are some risk factors in clinical presentation that you can look at. And some of the causes and symptoms of B12 deficiency, again, those are things you don't want to forget. Alcohol abuse, gastrointestinal disorders, maybe they don't absorb B12 well at all. Maybe they need a sublingual form. Maybe they need an injection. Maybe they're just taking cyanocobalamin and that not active and that's not the form that the cells need. Uh, genetic disorders, inadequate intake again. Uh, G H. pylori infection can reduce your absorption of B12, right? Because the H. pylori, that little tail, that little bugger can actually reduce the acid in your stomach. It likes a lower acid environment, so it reduces your acid production. And then you're not going to get the B12 out of, out of your food. You're not going to get minerals out of your food either. Um, medication use, you want to evaluate somebody's medication use. If they're on a proton pump inhibitor or histamine blocker, then they're not going to absorb their B12 either. Or metformin and nitrous oxide, two more mm-hmm. medications that actually impair your B12 absorption. Um, and then just the clinical symptoms and manifestations you can look on, right? Online, yeah, I think there's a that. lot of them. It's so, an important yeah, thing you to look that, at. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. It's an absolutely important thing for us to be paying attention to. Uh, and, and then put that together with the piece of the puzzle. Boy, the B12 serum is fine, but the whole transcobalamin is low. Let's catch them before they go into full deficiency. Perfect. Cool. All right. Let's take a look. Um, I know you've done a lot of work on selenium. Um, too much. <laughs> too much. I love it. Selenium. You only need a little, but you need it a lot. <laughs> so, um, this is something we can actually measure. And um, just, I, I want to mention just a couple of things. It's a, obviously a trace mineral that's vital for many, many systems in the body. I think you know, one of the things that we look at at selenium being um, essential for you know, the central nervous system, cardiovascular system, immune system, the endocrine system uh, plays a role. Antioxidant activity, there we go again. It seems to be the theme of the podcast. Uh, mm-hmm. Thyroid hormone metabolism, right? So we'll take a look at that too. Um, uh, Nice. It it is uh, easy to measure. Uh, I'm not sure about the cost of it, but uh, if you want to be measuring that, uh, it is something that we will be uh, uh, having in the software as well. So um, I know there's a lot of a lot of material. Do you want to do a little quick pricey of some of the the highlights? Sure. Um, and I'm just adding selenium to my panels too. <laughs> it's oh, yeah. fifty-four dollars standalone. Yeah, it's, yeah it's it's not cheap. So um, worth it. Yeah. You can skip something else this month and get your selenium drawn. Right, right. Or again, get it as part of a pattern. So I'm sorry, the next thing I get a little off track here. Yeah, so uh, let's dive into a little bit. I mean, I'm just reading some of the stuff that you've got here. You know, it seems like we've got a theme going on here, a little bit of uh, antioxidant. I think one of the things I'm picking up is blood levels correlate with glutathione peroxidase mm-hmm. activity. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have been talking about glutathione peroxidase in the podcast today. Um, reflect tissue stores of selenium. Um, have you tested this much in your patients? I have not. You know, I haven't, and now I will. Um, yeah. Because another thing is we don't want to go overboard on selenium either. Higher yeah, levels can have absolutely. some adverse effects. So I usually supplement with about 200 micrograms in a day, but also sometimes say, well, you don't need a Brazil nut a couple of times a week. Uh, but don't overdo it, right? Because, again, mm-hmm. too much selenium isn't good. But I thought, you know what, I'm going to actually start to measure so that if there is somebody with a higher end of selenium, then I might back down on this supplementation. So I'm going to start to use it a lot more. And it's going to be so easy when it's in the uh, software. Yeah. And the serum level seems to be a good reflection. You don't have to go That's into good. a red blood yeah. cell. Or, you know. Nice. And selenium is one of those, bio- it's one of those trace uh, minerals that is really depleted in our soils. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Yes. You know, it's it's essential for thyroid hormone metabolism and a, and a lot of other things as well. And, and you've put some great information here about uh, its relationship to to antioxidants and, and oxidative stress and glutathione peroxidase and helping to reduce oxidation of LDL cholesterol. Mm-hmm. So it it seems to be one of these uh, uh, trace minerals that we should be paying cl- closer attention to. So mm-hmm. I really appreciate that your dive into the into the research. This is. We have uh, on the blog here, just, just to give you a sense, we've got uh, 60 references that uh, Beth has done in this short article. So thank you very much for doing that. So can't stop diving. Can't stop diving. So, um, <laughs> so there's some information here too about uh, 
what levels reflect efficiency and things like that. So, and, and also it can detoxify cadmium, arsenic, and mercury. I thought yeah. that was really Fantastic. interesting. Yeah. Because yeah. you got yeah. cadmium, I hate to say it, in chocolate, you got arsenic in our rice, and you have mercury in the seafood. So, oh, yeah. we are <laughs> so absorbing those things. So, selenium is going to help you detoxify them. Like Dr. Persono said, glutathione is going to help get the mercury out of the brain. Selenium might be having a, a, a hand in that. So, yeah. Super important. And you don't know where the food, unless you grow your own food, you don't know where the food was grown and grown. And the content of food heavily relies on the soil, like we said. So you really don't know how much you're getting with the diet. So I like to be sure and I like that to be part of my good multivitamin uh, mineral supplement. So 200 cool. mics for the day. Good, good. So yeah, look for that in the software. We will be measuring that. It'll be part of our, uh, our patterns and also uh, in the blood test results report as well. Finally, uh, we're going to look at a new calculation that we've got in the software. And this is something that um, you and I have been talking about for quite a while. Uh, we love ratios. So we're looking here at the ratio between free T3 and free T4. And this isn't something that is usually measured or reported on. So we have a way to be able to calculate this uh, and report on it in, in the software. So what we're looking at here, basically you take the free T3 level and you divide it by the free T4 level and can give you some really interesting information about the current thyroid status. So it really is a reflection on the conversion of T4 to T3. Mm -hmm. Coming back to selenium, this process of T4 being, being deiodinized in mm -hmm. the peripheral tissues is a selenium dependent enzyme that does that. It's a selenium containing deiodinase enzyme. So making selenium a key player in thyroid function right alongside iodine. So remember, if we have the tyrosine backbone, you have four molecules of iodine on there. And then in order to make that into a much more metabolically active T3 or triiodothyronine, the body has to take an iodine molecule off. It's not just any iodine molecule, it has to be on the five prime spot on the tyrosine residue. So that is done by selenium containing deiodinase enzyme, five prime deiodinase. So um, yeah. I love thyroid metabolism. It's extraordinary. You look at this molecule <laughs> of tyrosine with these four yeah. or three, um, and depending on where the iodine is sitting on that tyrosine mm -hmm. makes it either extraordinarily metabolically active or it makes it into something that's reverse T3, which is kind of mm -hmm. like a block. It's a mm -hmm. metabolic blocker. So, uh, you know, the, the body is extraordinarily, um, complex in, in that relationship. So maybe you could talk a little bit about um, kind of what an increased ratio means. Um, yeah, increased free T3 to free T4. So it's T3 to T4, free version. Elevated can reflect an increasing free T3 and or decreased free T4, common sense, right? But that can be associated with a variety of conditions like Graves disease, metabolic syndrome, insulin resistance, and even fatty liver. So you might see those on the ink when you see that ratio increasing. Uh, it can also be an indicator of cardiovascular risk because it positively correlates with the pulse wave velocity and adipose-related cardiovascular inflammatory markers, interleukin-6 and HSCRP. So you see that increasing ratio, you want to take a look at that, right? We always think, mm -hmm. well, free T3 is great. That's what we want. We don't need free T4 so much, but we don't want that ratio to be on the increase because that's a sign of metabolic imbalance. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. It could be predictive of metabolic syndrome. There was a uh, Dutch population-based study, a cohort of 26,000 plus, sorry, men and women. And they found that increases in the free T3, free T4 ratio were associated with four of five defining components of metabolic syndrome, blood pressure, HDL cholesterol, triglycerides, and waist circumference. It didn't seem to call it correlate with fasting blood glucose. Okay. Right. But, you know, with insulin resistance, sometimes people can keep their fasting blood glucose down. The insulin is so high, I have found that. So in this case, those other four um, components of blood pressure, HDL, triglyceride, and waist circumference did correlate with an increased free T3, free T4 ratio. That was very interesting. Another study, a cross-sectional study of 132,000 plus male and female subjects who had youth thyroid, who had no issues with thyroid, um, and that was at one institution. They found that both the free T3, free T4 ratio and TSH positively associated with markers for insulin resistance and parameters mm. of metabolic syndrome. So for the most part, the majority of the research seemed to say that an increase in free T3, free T4 
correlated with an increase in metabolic syndrome, basically, and insulin resistance. And the things that go along with it, right? Waist circumference, triglyceride levels. In this case, the fasting blood glucose did correlate uh, systolic blood pressure and mm -hmm. uh, had a stronger association with metabolic syndrome than TSH did. So that ratio told us more in this case about metabolic syndrome than just looking at the TSH. Right. So that was very, very interesting. That study was very good. Let's cool. see, and I'm going, do we want more? Let's uh, no, <laughs> just uh, maybe touch on a little bit of a decrease ratio because obviously there okay. is a decrease in them. So a decrease could mean not enough free T3 and maybe somebody's only receiving T4 therapy because right. a lot of like levothyroxine, you're only getting T4. Now it's up to your body to convert it to, to T3 and then to free T3. So if you see that reduced ratio, there might be an issue with producing T3 and producing free T3. Uh, it might be a sign of hypothyroidism. It could be selenium deficiency, remember, because you need selenium to convert the right. T4 to T3. Uh, disrupted deiodinase activity. Uh, and of course, again, reduced production of T3 and free T3. And a ratio of less than two suggests the presence of a low T3 syndrome. So it's nice because the ratio can tell you a little bit, but it can tell you a lot too. You might have right, a right. more serious clinical issue on your hands. Um, there are things that can interfere with the conversion of T4 to T3 besides just not getting enough selenium. Uh, critical illness, inflammation, and hypoxia yeah. can reduce that conversion. And sometimes that might be protective, but reduces the conversion of T4 to T3. Uh, can increase the degradation of T4, and then you'll see a rise in free T3, free T4 ratios. So there's a lot, it's very dynamic. So you have to, again, not just look at the ratio or just the levels and just the ratio, but what is the clinical uh, condition of the patient or of the client, right, outside the mm -hmm. hospital. Like, right? uh, could be a sensitive marker of, of ill health, a low free T3 can be. And decreased free T3 and increased free T4 correlate with acute and chronic disease and actually can help predict, predict long-term mortality, mortality risk. And there was a retrospective cohort analysis of males and females. And those with a lower free T3, free T4 ratio of 2.1, um, and that is picograms per ml for the free T3 and nanograms per DL for the free T4, they were at increased risk of mortality during a follow-up period of 36 months. Uh, they did notice that in the increased mortality group, CRP, sedimentation rate, ferritin, and LDH were also elevated. So again, we have a com combination of biomarkers that you can look for uh, to see if they uh, increased mortality, in some case, all-cause mortality. Wow. Um, increase, and you can assess cardiovascular risk as well. Seems like an important thing. I wonder why you know it's not more widely reported. Um, they haven't read the they haven't read the blog yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're going to do the calculation for you, so you don't have mm -hmm. to worry about that. As long as you've got the free T three and the free T four, we will automatically calculate it for you, yep. and so we'll be having that uh, in the blood work as well. So, thanks for for doing all of that research. This this will be up on the on the blog as well, so you can kind of get a sense of of the amount of research that that goes into all of this so wow we covered a lot beth thank you <laughs> and we, you must be uh tired i'm kind of uh, uh yeah, on, the, on the end of my uh of my energy levels as well so yeah. Yeah. thank you so much indeed for all that you do for the research side um i love doing these podcasts with you and uh, we will be joining you next month we'll do mm -hmm another deep dive into some some biomarkers and some new things that we're looking at and uh, so until then be well be safe um, spend time with your families enjoy uh, mm -hmm. the, the, the summer don't stay too hot i know it's mm -hmm. super hot in florida it's pretty damn hot here in ohio california so uh, enjoy the summer get some vitamin d and uh, we'll see you next month